It is an honor to be here today, three years after I first came to Oxford as a student of the Contemporary India Master's degree. When I arrived here, I had completed about a decade of service with about half my time in the private sector and the rest in the management consulting profession. As a young professional, I was privileged to have had a rich set of experiences. I'd already had the chance to shape uh, public policy, to truly understand how finance and corporations work, both multinationals and Indian ones, the chance to see the growing need for and potential impact the social sector could have on changing lives, and the chance to understand how technology as a disruptive force changes the way the world works. Through this journey, I had the fortune to recognize that my calling in life rested in the space between public policy and development, and my purpose in life was to make a contribution to society. En route to Oxford, I was questioned by many as to what value would an India degree provide given my profession, my experiences, and my career. But today I can confidently say that reading the contemporary India degree at Oxford changed my perspective on development and in turn my life. It has allowed me to reinvent my professional career. It made me aware that if each one of us could, could, could realize the difference between what we do and what we are capable of doing, we could collectively solve many of India's problems. Analyzing India through six disciplines, politics, political economy, international relations, human development, culture and society, and the environment from a distance was a demanding and intellectually rewarding experience. Such multidisciplinary scrutiny allowed for an understanding of India's achievements and, its, and failures, its challenges and their interdependencies. Especially interesting was the process of making the links between politics and society, between politics and the economy, between human development and politics, <laughs> between international relations, politics, and economics that gave, us a that gave us a creative and deep understanding of the forces holding India's development hostage. For example, the issue of corruption, which has been talked about several times this morning, has tarnished India's reputation on the world stage and reminded the world of its political and institutional weaknesses. Understanding the debates about the root causes of corruption the distribution and disposition of power between the four groups, politicians, bureaucrats, the business class, and civil society, and the history of political accommodations, development strategies, necessary and unnecessary regulations, the distribution of technological and financial capabilities, rent-seeking, and capital flight is an example of what students on this program should expect to learn. Further, not only does this program enable a critical dissection of the tensions clouding India's development, but also allows for a scrutiny of their merits, the advocates of change, and their agendas through an extensive review of wide-ranging scholarly literatures. It discusses the social forces, gender, caste, religion, and age that tightly regulate India's informal economy, be it in rural or urban areas, and how these aspects of identity are actively used to manipulate the ballot. The program also highlights how the provision of basic services, education, healthcare, clean water and food underpin the, basic, the, the capabilities of individuals as well as the development of the nation. Its main, the mainstreaming of international relations allows readers to understand the political character of India as an emerging power, India's dominance in South Asia, the reasons for its conflicted borders, as well as nuclear politics. Anticipating the impending fight for natural resources in the world this program mainstreams the study of India's environment, 
It requires all students to develop an understanding of climate change, after which they're free to critically examine and dive into topics of their individual interest. Over the last three years, I understand students have researched problems of nuclear and solar energy, coal, oil, water, together with development conflicts surrounding land. Mainstreaming the issue of climate change, which threatens us and our future generations, is a significant service this program does to society at large. In 2007 alone, India generated 1.4 billion tons of carbon emissions, accounting for 5% of the world's emissions, and today is one of the top five polluters in the world. Yet, it's the, largest, it's the country with the largest number of energy poor, with 400 million people having no access to electricity at all. In the same year, in 2007, India dis monsoon floods displaced 14 million people in India, an overwhelming proportion of them being uh, to totally poor. Now, as temperatures rise, it, as, as India's temperatures rise, the, uh, the adverse impact of climate change will only worsen. For instance, models for farm income in India suggest that as temperatures are going to rise it, by, from 2 to 3.5 degrees centigrade in, in, by 2050, which is likely now to be a certainty, it's likely to reduce net farm revenues by 9 to 25%. This will deprive a large part of the rural population of employment. Although the world is increasingly adopting a, reduc a reductionist approach to dealing with the climate crisis, visionary nations are actively seeking ways to turn the climate crisis into an opportunity by using a wide range of policy instruments to foster the growth of technologies which not only reduce emissions but also slow the depletion of natural resources. Understanding the perils of climate change, especially for the underprivileged, the ongoing geopolitics of green technologies between the US and China and the rest of the developing world, technology development and diffusion paradigms, measures to mitigate and adapt to climate change, the role of forests as, as carbon sinks, providers of food and medicine, and keepers of biodiversity are subjects the students do not expect to learn about, but become fascinated by right at the start of this program. The need for such a widespread multidisciplinary understanding of India is necessary for India to benefit from its demographic dividend and narrow the schisms in its development journey between the over 300 million people living in dire and persistent poverty and the bourgeoisie whose, income is, whose wealth is envisaged to grow 18% year on year for the next 15 years. These schisms have resulted from the inequitable distribution of land, education, and other basic services. These problems are well known, but they are rarely understood as a whole. For example, in the absence of a multidisciplinary approach, it is seldom easy for individuals to, to recognize that lack of access to energy is one of the root causes of poor public health outcomes. It's an impediment to human development because collecting firewood results in keeping young girls out of school, stunts economic growth because of the decline in productivity during darkness, and is catalytic to the climate crisis as it increases the pace of deforestation. In India, a holistic understanding is vital as we grapple with balancing the tensions emerging from the interests of the haves, the populism of the political classes, and the needs of the have-nots. Acquiring this understanding is not simply essential for aspiring development economists preparing for their doctoral research, but also for corporations, especially global ones, looking to make a material play in India. Corporations in India have to navigate the vexing political economy to anchor profits and rally a range of interest groups as they balance growth and contribute to development. Billions in investment beckon as India's demographics and infrastructure develop. 
Investors in India need to understand the subtle differences between the many little Indias within India. As, for example, several consumer companies have discovered through sales figures that skyrocket during the Durga Puja in Kolkata, during Ganpati in Mumbai, during Pongal in Chennai, and during Sekriani in Kohima. India's status as a nation running a sovereign deficit rather than a surplus indicates that a substantive portion of its trillions of dollars required for its development will have to come from the private sector. Thus, the business of government is increasingly becoming the business of businesses, calling for unprecedented levels of collaboration in an equitable and transparent manner with the regulatory role of the state actually set to expand. Virtually every sector in India, from banking to mining, to electricity, to construction, to water supply, to transport, to defense, requires obtaining clearances and approvals. These are processes riddled with inconsistencies, and the interpretation and application of policies in the gulfs between the central and state governments are also not consistent, let alone the new laws that must be developed for effective governance since the 74th Amendment to the Constitution was made in 1992. Decoding such opaque policies pushing for a change in the political, institutional, and business climate, attempting to create a more level playing field, and fostering socially and economically inclusive growth will require a generation of leaders who have been trained to understand the difference between development and growth, and who have the ability to balance them, to balance or trade them off in a way that does not cannibalize the other. In short, a generation of leaders who understand that greed is not good will be vital for the country's prosperity in the long term. To this end, Oxford's contribution to India remains unrivaled in the world by any other institution. In the master's degree, which I spent a year reading, Oxford has set in motion an engine to create the capabilities and capacities required to foster socially and economically inclusive growth. Thank you.